So it's springtime. There's a lot of work going on in the farm. Has anyone here grown up or maybe still work on a farm in any way? Anyone grow up on a farm? Amen. So a handful of you. So you know the work that goes in, and, and we have a small farm, it's obviously not large. But you understand the work that goes into laboring over the land. So why did I show you guys that video? So, you know, a lot of times my family, some of my friends, they ask, you know, hey, well, um, you know, let's get together. And usually my response is, I can't. I got a lot of yard work to do. I got work on the farm. And a lot of times they don't believe me. You know, they think I'm just brushing them off. But sometimes, and I'm just using this video as an illustration, but sometimes the context is important. It's important to have context behind your story. But it's also important to give a demonstration about why. Because if you didn't see that and I just told you about the work that I had to do, it's sometimes a little hard to believe. Well, how much work could you possibly have? So there's the context and then there's the demonstration that follows. And I think that's relevant to our discussion today. So today we're going to be in the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, actually, and if you have your pew Bibles, you can turn to page 1074. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, but hold your uh, finger there for just a moment. We're going to start in verse 19 today. But hold your finger there because I want to give you a little bit of context because I think this story requires us to have some context if we're really going to understand it. But it, what we're going to find here is that there's also a demonstration here that's going to lead us or should lead us to believe. So we're going to look at all that today. So last week was Resurrection Sunday. It was an amazing celebration where believers all around the world gathered to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Amen? Amen. But, you know, I noticed this week the num our numbers are fewer. And again, this isn't a criticism on anyone, but, you know, I think there comes a point in the life of every believer where we have to go beyond just celebrating the resurrection. We actually have to live the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, we all know them. I used to be one. I used to be a holiday Christian. Anybody else identify with being a holiday Christian at one point in their life? Where you only went to church on the major holidays, his birth and his death. Other than that, I didn't see you at church. I didn't see myself at church, to be honest with you. But living out the resurrection is sometimes easier said than done. The reality of it is sometimes we just, some days we just don't want to get out of bed. You know, some days we want to stay in bed, covers pulled over our face, and we don't want to be bothered. There are some days where I just want to stay locked away in my house. I, I don't care who's knocking at the door, I'm not answering it. I'm going to keep the shades drawn so no one knows I'm there. There are some days I just don't want to face the realities and circumstances of my life. And so what do I do? I close it away so I don't have to deal with it. But you know what that does for us? 
You know what it's done for me? Whenever I found myself there, it imprisons me. It imprisons all of us when we just want to shut down, lock down, and move away from all of the realities of our circumstances and our situations. Now, Scripture that we're going to read today helps us to understand something important and something quite clear in the text. We're going to see that what I just described is exactly what's happening in our text today. We're going to read about a group of people, too, who didn't want to face the reality of their circumstances. They didn't want to face the reality of their situation, and what did they do? We find on two very unique events where they were locked away behind closed doors in a room. So it's the evening of the resurrection. I want to give you some context before we get into our scripture. It's the evening of the resurrection. We find a group of people here in the text that are locked away. And quite frankly, I don't blame them. I want you to think about this, and, and, and I want you to try to feel the emotion, to feel the context of what I'm about to describe. You're one of those disciples. The evening of the resurrection... You just found out that morning that the body of your Lord and your Messiah, the man God that you have come to know over the last three years is now gone. Three days ago, you witnessed one of the most traumatic events of your life. You saw if Isaiah's account, if his prophecy is true, you literally saw a man that was beaten beyond human recognition. And the damage of the psyche of these people is still very real and visceral. And they're in this room, locked away. They saw, some of them, the empty tomb for themselves. And what did they do? They locked themselves away. And we find in the text, which again we're going to read here in a moment, a week later... Not much else has changed. You see, we see Jesus' tomb is empty. It's open. But the disciples here in this story, which we're about to read, they're locked away. They're behind closed doors. And the house that they were locked in has now become their tomb. Jesus is roaming loose. He's on the move. But these disciples are bound by fear. They have shut their eyes to the reality of their circumstances and their situations. They don't want to face the fact that life is now different. It's changed forever. Now, they got the message Mary of Magdala came, the first evangelist in the scripture came preaching a message of faith, of hope, and of love. And what did they do? They shut it away. They rejected her message. And she was testifying of nothing less than the resurrected Christ. And they were blinded by fear. 
blinded by uncertainty. They visited the tomb themselves. They saw that it was empty. They left it and entered the tomb of their own fear, their own doubt, and their own blindness. So let's examine the text today. We're going to answer this question today in our text. How do we accept a genuine invitation that will transform us from unbelief to belief in Jesus, from fear to courage? There's an invitation that we're going to read about today. So if you will, again, if you still have your text open, we're going to examine some scripture. Now, I, I, um, a football reference, I, um, I, made a, um, I made an audible this morning, and I was just going to read, and I think the scripture that we have just says 24 to 31, but that's okay. I'm going to actually start in verse 19. I only have starting in verse 24 up here, um, but, but I'm going to read starting in verse 19, and I think it's important for us to read from 19, because if I start at 24, you don't get the full picture. So I'm going to read in 19, and then um, we'll pick up on the slides here uh, in verse 24. And I'm, again, I'm reading from the NIV here. Whatever uh, text you have is fine. Uh, Father, I thank you um, for the reading and the revelation of your word. Grant us wisdom and understanding as we examine this text in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the door locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. By the way, moving forward, I'm going to refer to as it is in the Hebrew, Shalom. Okay, so peace be with you doesn't quite capture it, what Jesus said. I'm going to say Shalom, okay? So whenever you say peace be with you, I will refer to Shalom. And that, that will be the word that I use moving forward in our, in our sermon today. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Shalom. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Picking up in 24 on the screen here. And now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house together and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miracles and signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe in Jesus, for that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. Amen. All right, for those of you who, who uh, like to jot down notes, uh, this, this might be a time where you can take down some notes. I'm, I'm going to give you uh, a few things that we can glean from the text today as to how we see that Jesus takes us from unbelief to confidence in him, from fear to courage. I'll take you through a few things. And again, it's all in the text, and we'll, we'll wrestle with this a little bit today. So bear with me. So here's number one. How does Jesus take us from unbelief to confidence in him? Number one, he comes to us. There's a couple times in the text where it says Jesus came. See, there's nothing that can keep Jesus out. See, these, these men and women, they were behind locked doors. They were in a place where no one could get access to, and suddenly appears the resurrected Jesus. Not once in this room, but twice. There is nothing, beloved, not even your own fears, doubts, blindness, uncertainty, that will keep out Jesus from your life. But Jesus comes not in some phantom type of way. Read the account in Luke 24. It says Jesus literally sat down with them and ate fish. He wasn't some phantom or something that just uh, a vapor. This was the real physical Jesus. But his body, his perfect physical form defied the laws of nature. And he appeared where he so desired. Now listen to the first thing that Jesus says. And I love this, that when he came, what does he say? Well, I'll tell you what he should have said in our fleshly knowledge and understanding. What he should have said was, where were you? What happened to you? You claim to be, and so on. You get the picture. But he didn't say that. See, here's what happens. And this is how, this is the first thing that, how Jesus takes us to this place. Jesus comes to us, and what does he say? Shalom. He says, peace be with you. Now, when we translate it in our English context, it sounds really simple. But shalom is so complex. It's the peace of God be with you. The peace of God be in you and through you. There is depth and meaning. Peace be with you just doesn't quite capture it. And that's why I emphasized shalom. But he offers us peace. Psalms 123, I'm sorry, Psalms 103 verse 10 says that he does not treat us the way our sins deserve. See, he, he came to us, and what does he do? He, he, he offers us peace. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, Paul summarizes the work of the cross as a work of peace. Ephesians 2, 14 through 17, you can read it for yourself. You see, we have declared war on God. Man in our sin and our rebellion from the garden has declared war on God. And what did Jesus do? God Almighty in Yahweh the Father has declared peace unto men who will receive and believe in Jesus. Jesus made it possible through the resurrection for there to be peace. Number two. 
Jesus reassures us. See, he didn't just come. What he did was he came, but he invited them in. He invited even the, the ten in the first encounter on the evening of the resurrection. He didn't just come to them. He invited them into himself. He said, come and, and look at my hands and, and see my, my side. It's an invitation to draw close to him, to examine who he is in his very substance and his nature, to come to him. But see, his wounds weren't just an opportunity to examine him. See, his wounds were evidence of the price that was paid for our salvation. His wounds were evidence that peace with God is possible through Jesus. They're evidence that the basis of our peace is in Jesus, is in the person and the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. So see, guys, in our fear, in our doubts, in our uncertainty, our unbelief, we should not lock out kick out and refuse the message of hope, peace, and salvation that Jesus brings to us. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Number three, hopefully you're still following here, and there'll be one more after this, is the commission. See, Jesus doesn't just come, and he doesn't just assure us, but what he does to get us to this place of unbelief to confidence is there is a commission that happens to us. There was a commission that happened here in the text, and this wasn't a commission that was just for the 12. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I too send you. And this wasn't just for the 12. It, it, it was, there were many other believers in the room that Jesus too said, as the Father has sent me, I too send you. What, I want you to think about this. When I read that text, it, it blew my mind of the greatness, the privilege that we have to carry his word and his work the tremendous responsibility that comes with that commission. I, and I don't know about you, but every day, and, and Dino, you mentioned it earlier when we were praying, how great it is to be able to share the message of the resurrected Jesus. Because Paul says, listen guys, Paul says, if he wasn't resurrected, our faith is pointless. It's rubbish. It's garbage. It's, it, our faith means nothing. And what's interesting about that is, is Pete Paul preached a lot about his, uh, his death, but he suddenly began to transition in this text, speaking of his resurrection. There's a great privilege that despite you and I's failures, and Lord knows I have many of them, many failures, and many weaknesses. He still called me to be here today with all of you to preach the gospel. And despite all of your failures and shortcomings, he too has commissioned you to go share the message of hope and love of his resurrection. 
But then he goes one step further, this final piece, which could arguably be the most important. So he's come to us, he's assured us, he's commissioned us, but a commission is nothing without power. And what does he do? He breathed on them and he gave them the power of the Holy Ghost. And he says, I give this to you. I give you the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the, there's an interesting distinction, guys, that happens here. During the life and the ministry of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwelt with them through the person of Jesus. But something changed. Now, the Holy Spirit, Jesus was about to ascend to the Father. And Jesus says, now the Holy Spirit will dwell in you and not just with you. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit brings power and dominion and authority. And now this Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, now lives in you as a believer. Somebody should have said amen because I got excited when I wrote that. I'm going to tell you the truth. Amen. And, and now we come to this character. You know, we, we were kind of in this zoomed out kind of panoramic picture about the disciples and being locked in this room and Thomas came, but he wasn't there on the evening that Jesus appeared. He wasn't there in that moment. They said, Thomas, we saw Jesus and Thomas laid down the gauntlet. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe. I will not believe unless I see him, I touch him finger in his hand, hand in the side. I won't believe. He laid down the gauntlet. And a week later, his challenge was answered. Now, I think we, in many Christian circles, we, we call him Doubting Thomas. Anybody heard him referred to as that way in the text? Most of us, right? You know, I, I think that's a really unfair adjective to use for this man. And, and I'll tell you why. If you really read in the text... There are some things you can, you can infer about this man. One, that Thomas was a courageous man, that he was a seeker of truth, that he was spirit-filled, and that he wasn't afraid to ask difficult questions. And the reality of it is, the other disciples had the same doubt that he has right now. You don't believe me? Read the text, and I'll, I'll give you the textual uh, example and context of that. But what's certain is Thomas wasn't there for whatever reason. It's the evening of the resurrection. Jesus appears. Thomas isn't. The text doesn't tell us why. You could infer whatever. Maybe he was scared. Maybe his doubts. On, whatever the reason, he just wasn't there. Here's what I do know. Solitude what solitude does to us is that it feeds discouragement. Anyone been alone and stayed alone and just feel like you could not get out of that rut? Because you're by yourself. That's what I do know. Scripture actually tells us, do not forsake the fellowship of the saints. It tells us that for a reason. So that we're not isolated. So we're not alone. And so the devil doesn't have time to play with us in our isolation. We need the strength and encouragement of the, of the saints. So te Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus comes. 
And Jesus encounters this man in Thomas. Now, you know what I love about this story is that, that the focus here isn't the entire group. It's almost as if Jesus reappeared just to address Thomas. I don't know if you see that. This is how much he loves you. That Jesus will ignore everything else that's going and he will challenge and tackle your issues personally, intimately. Jesus will step in the room when you seem like there's no one who can access me, no one who can get to me. I'm all alone. Jesus will break through just like he did with Thomas. And what did he do? Same thing. He walks in and he comes to him and he offers him shalom. You know, he reassured Thomas in this moment with an invitation to come. Thomas didn't say a word. Mind you, Thomas's gauntlet was thrown down last Sunday. Here it is a week later. Jesus wasn't there in the physical to hear the challenge that Thomas made to him. And without saying a word, Jesus enters the room, offers him shalom, and says, here I am. Put your hand right here and here. He invites him in. He draws him close. He says, inspect me closely. But in in, in the same breath, and this is what I love about the Lord, there is a quick and swift rebuke. And what does he say? He says, come and examine me. See my hands, see my side. And then in the same breath, without skipping a beat, Jesus says, stop. He says, stop. I love that. He says, stop doubting. And believe. The, the Greek translation literally says, stop un or stop being of disbelief and believe. Jesus challenged him in that moment. And, and w- when I see this rebuke, you know, I wrestled with that and I said, What's he rebuking? Has anyone here had doubt before? You'd be willing to admit that you've had doubt? And I have two. And so when I hear about this story about a guy named Doubting Thomas, and that I have doubted too, and Jesus comes and rebukes him, I had to ask myself, what is Jesus rebuking? Is it doubt? Is it unbelief? What is it? What's the difference? And here's the difference. Unbelief, or rather I should say doubt, doubt is an issue of intellect. See, doubt says, you know, I really want to believe, but I just got some problems and some questions that are unsettled, but I want to believe. That's doubt. Unbelief says, I won't believe. I can't believe. That's a moral issue. See, the the intellectual issue of doubt versus the moral issue of unbelief. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you the scriptural context that will help you understand this a little better. Jesus rebuked the disciples in Mark 16, 14 for the same exact issue, but there's more clarity in this text. It says that Jesus rebuked them because of the lack of faith and a stubborn refusal to believe. So why would, why would we call Thomas doubting 
Thomas. Every one of them, every one of us, have the same issue. If you want to get probably the best commentary on unbelief, read Hebrews 3. Hebrews is arguably probably the best commentary on unbelief that you will find. And what, you know what it says? God warns us in Hebrews 3 of unbelief. He says that an evil heart, or that he warns us rather, against an evil heart of unbelief. And he goes on. Read the text, I promise you. So how will you respond? How will we respond as believers to Jesus' challenge and his rebuke? You see, because in the next text, it indicates that Thomas himself responded. There's no indication in the text that Thomas even touched Jesus. There's no indication in the text that Thomas even accepted Jesus's invitation to come and examine me. Put your hands here and here. Nothing in the text tells us that, but you know what it does tell us? That immediately when Jesus challenged him, immediately when he rebuked him, what happened? Thomas cried out and he says, my Lord, my God. You see, because it wasn't the seeing of Jesus that put him in that place. It was finally the belief of who he is. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The powerful words that Jesus laid down before us. And Jesus, like in the case of Thomas, when we experience the risen Christ, our life cannot be anything but transformed. You cannot meet the risen Jesus wherever it is that he meets you and your life not be transformed in a real tangible way. Because again, like in the case of Thomas, Jesus has taken a personal interest in every single one of you. He came to us he reassures us, he commissions us, and he empowers us. Now, th this brief story about Thomas should be a warning. It should be a warning to every single one of us that belief robs us of, uh, unbelief robs us of blessings. Unbelief robs us of opportunities to be in fellowship and communion with God and the fellowship of the saints. It keeps us alone, it keeps us isolated, and it keeps us in darkness and in blindness. So you know Thomas represents, and we're almost done here, and I'll invite the worship team up here in just a few minutes. What Thomas represents here is this scientific world of a lifestyle or world where a skeptic will say, I will not believe unless dot, dot, dot. How many of you have encountered your friends or family or those you might encounter that says, I won't believe unless dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. And you know what they're admitting to? They're admitting to the fact that they do believe. That they have faith in something. And you know what that faith is? See, as believers, our faith is firmly rooted and centered in he who is Jesus Christ. But those of the world have a belief as well. And most of them, it's just a belief in self. That see, my questions, my requirements that I'm asking Jesus to fill, there is more faith in those requirements, that experiment, that set of data and information. There's more belief in that than there is in 
he who is Christ. There's more belief in that which we've created versus he who revealed. And this is what we see in Thomas's story and in so many of our lives. And at this point, the question that we have to ask is, what is the object of your faith? See, if, because if maybe you're in the room or maybe you're watching online and you don't quite believe. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine this week. And he's struggling in his marriage. Very good friend of mine. I've probably known him 20 years. One of the most humble and sincere men that I've known give you the shirt off his back. And he told me, hey, you know, my wife and I are, um, we filed for divorce. They've been together almost 25 years. And it broke my heart. And so I started sharing with him the hope of the gospel. And he says, you know, Will, I appreciate it, man. I respect it. I do. Say, I'm just not there, man. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not I, don't, I don't believe like that. And what he was really telling me is he believes in something. He's just not believing in Jesus. And I almost asked him, I didn't. I almost asked him, how's that working out for you? I didn't. I bit my tongue. But he says, yeah, I just don't believe like that. But what he's telling me is, I'd rather trust in myself, even though it's going horribly wrong. I'm going to trust in myself instead of trusting in the creator. Why? There's more evidence, the historicity, there's more evidence for the resurrected Jesus than it is for any other faith system or belief. If you don't, look, if you don't believe me, don't read the Bible. You can read a million other extra biblical texts that prove the historicity of our risen Christ. So where is your faith placed? It's okay to doubt. Sometimes in Christian circles, it's taboo to say, I don't know, I don't believe, I doubt. It, it's, it's taboo to say those words in Christian circles. But I want you to know today that if you are having those doubts, if you are having those concerns, Jesus is not shunning you. To the contrary, Jesus says, come a little closer and check it out. Jesus says, come a little closer, press into me. I'm not going to push you away because you're not sure. I'm not going to judge you or push you away because you're saying, hey, I won't believe because I put a set of criteria that you got to meet. No, he's still going to meet you right where you are. See, the early followers weren't saved because they saw Jesus. Because we, we're not going to see Jesus in his physical form like they did. You know why the early followers were saved? Because they believed in Jesus. Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. And I'll invite the worship team to come up here um, as I make my final remarks. I want to thank you guys for allowing me to share this word with you today. That you would allow Jesus to come to you, to assure you, to commission you, and empower you. And as you hear these words today, the word of God that I have presented to you, and hopefully as you hear and examine the word of God in your private time for yourself, 
I pray that you will come face to face with the risen Jesus. That as you examine the text, you will see how he lived, what he did, what he said. And that all the evidence that you see and read points to the conclusion that he is God in the flesh. That he is the savior of the world and the redeemer of your soul. Will you accept his invitation today to come closer, to examine him? Will you accept his invitation to help bring you from unbelief to experiencing the joy of everlasting life? I challenge you with that today.